0: Well, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be with you this afternoon. I, in fact, I feel extremely uh, honoured and uh, humbled, honoured uh, that uh, Chola would ask me to preach God's word today. Humbled as I, I, uh, I hear from, from these men who have served so faithfully. I hear your prayers. I, I hear your words. I see uh, faces out there, Alice, Michael, and uh, you've all been a great encouragement to me and to Amanda in our walk with the Lord and to see God's blessing here over the last few years has just been quite remarkable. Um, so as we, we gather to, to remember and celebrate God's grace uh, in this place, at this church, 200 years, um, I come as a, as, as a former church attender here with my wife before we moved to Canada in 2009, uh, personal co- connection to the area, uh, having grown up uh, just down the road in, in Barnhurst and hung about at Bexley Heath quite a bit in, uh, as a young kid, uh, coming to faith, uh, Barnhurst Methodist Church when I was 18 years old. My wife, uh, too, t- not, not long after that, a real personal feeling and connection uh, to this place, to, to this area, to this people and to this church. I'm going to preach from uh, Joshua in, in the Old Testament, if you'd like to turn there, in your Bibles. I'm going to read just a, a few verses from Joshua chapter 3 uh, and uh, chapter 4 and I'll pray briefly and, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Joshua chapter 3 beginning at verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people. As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Now, the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men, from the people from each tribe a man and command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan And take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And then moving to the end of the chapter, verse 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea when he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And so, Father, gracious Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears to to hear your word clearly, to receive it with joy. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his sovereign grace, that we would remember, that we would delight, that we would move forward from this place with the gospel on our lips. In his name I pray, amen. Well, friends, brothers and sisters, um, we are experts at forgetting, aren't we? I think if I was to ask uh, you what the title of the sermon was last week, the sermon that I preached even here uh, last week, maybe half of us would remember. If I asked you what the points in the sermon were, I guess that would be significantly less. Um, I'm not the best at remembering names, which is bad for a pastor you've got to be good at remembering names if you're a pastor what about when you go upstairs and uh, you forget what you went up there for anyone ever done that my grandmother used to say I've got a memory like a sieve and we'd laugh as children at the thought of all these things falling through and out of her mind we'd laugh and that is until the day that she forgot that my granddad had died four years earlier and the Alzheimer's took a hold of her all the way to her own death a few years later. See, we are experts at forgetting from those lighthearted incidents to the extremes of the effects of fallenness on the human mind. In his book, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, Carl Truman, church historian, says that our world suffers from cultural amnesia Cultural amnesia. He notes that forgetfulness is what he calls a death work. And it's one of the hallmarks of modern education. Such that education is anti-historical. And so that it's not that, uh, just that society is just anti-historical. Society wants to erase history now. If history doesn't accord with modern ideas of what is moral. and So we've seen in recent times, in recent years, on college campuses uh, and beyond the tearing down of statues and memorials. Therefore, history or the past is seen as something to be overcome instead of be, to be remembered and learned from. Uh, sociologist Philip Reif said that forgetfulness In a culture leads to a barbarism which vandalises the physical artefacts of the past, but also the ideas and customs and practices of the past. So what happens is we lose our cultural moorings, our sense of national and individual identity, so that forgetfulness is a cause of cultural decline. Forgetfulness is also a cause of decline in wisdom, In the age what do our elders know nowadays what do the old people know now the past must be erased wisdom lies with the young forgetfulness is also a cause of relational decline relational decline decline in a marriage when spouses forget why they married or the vows that they made when they married they forget to show love and gratitude And forgiveness, they forget even to make an effort. And forgetfulness is also a cause of decline in our relationship with God. We forget who he is and all he has done for us. And so in his wisdom, God places markers in our lives, in the lives of his people, so that we won't forget his mighty acts in salvation. And like with birthdays or wedding anniversaries, we we mark the moment that causes us to remember, that causes us to be thankful as we move on. And we're here today to, to mark what God has done in this church over 200 years. His power, his faithfulness, his preservation, his wisdom, his sovereign grace. This is what we've got here with the 12 stones in Joshua chapter 4. A memorialization of God's saving deeds a memorialization of God's saving deeds now if you know the 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 book of Joshua at all you remember that Moses is dead and Joshua is now in command and poised to take the people of Israel over the Jordan and into the promised land of Canaan thus fulfilling God's promise to Abraham and then to Moses the blessings of land a, a name a nation so here's a moment of transition the blessings of Canaan across the Jordan. But there's a decision point, a decision point. They must choose to go over in order to enjoy the blessings. It's interesting, as you look at the text that that I read there, that in verse 19 uh, of chapter 4, the date is given, the 10th day of the first month the very same date 40 years before when they'd been called to choose the Passover lamb and choose to follow Moses in the exodus out of Egypt and which there they wandered, if you remember, in, in, in wilderness disobedience and never tasted the fulfilment of that promise. Now back to the decision. Will they take that step of faith that they refused to take before? Will they take up holy courage based on the purposes and promise, presence and precepts of God who has been so gracious to them and will they choose to go over the river? Of course, we read, as I read in the chapters there, that they do in chapters three and four, they do that. And so God instructs Joshua at the beginning of chapter four to gather 12 stones and 12 men representing the 12 tribes. And Joshua says to the 12 men to set up the stones as a sign So that we read in verse 6 of chapter 4, When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Joshua repeats that. Uh, At the end of chapter 4 in verse 21, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. The 12 stones are a memorial, a memorial, a call to remember, to remember God's mighty grace. Joshua was God's chosen instrument to lead them into that experience joshua joshua who you remember is called hoshea but renamed by moses as joshua the lord is salvation and through joshua god is showing a pattern of saving grace that is brought to fulfillment in the lord jesus christ the better joshua who matthew tells us is god incarnate and who will save his people from their sins And it is Jesus, isn't it, who sets up his own memorial forever in the Lord's Supper when he says of eating the bread and wine, do this in remembrance of me. Remember how I gave my body and blood to save you on the cross. So to remember, brothers and sisters, means to reflect on with with love and reverence and, and devotion And so biblical remembrance of God's mighty acts in the past, what it does then is stirs up faith and hope for the present and the future. And so that Peter, we all remember Peter and how he was good at forgetting God's grace at times, he says in his second letter, it is right to remind you of these things. What do these stones mean? Well, they don't mean whatever you want them to mean. When your children ask, you need to answer accurately according to God's word. The memorialization in these 12 stones is to remind the people of when God led the people across the Jordan, a unique and different event to the Red Sea, but but like it in some ways, and the people were to pass that on to the next generation. You're to tell them, You're to tell your children about what God has done. Remember how mightily he acted for his people. And then we trace that history from Joshua to Jesus. And we remember, we remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Sacrifice for sins. And what does that do? It stirs us up. It stirs us up to love and good works. It gives us hope. So when your children ask you, you here today when your children ask you, when others ask you, what are you doing here today? What's this service for? What do what these 12 stones mean? You can tell them. You can tell them. And so for the rest of our time, I just want to see the, the 12 stones as a memorialization of God's saving deeds and just examine them under three headings, really, briefly. Observation, consecration and exaltation. A few shun words for you to remember at this time of the afternoon helps with the memory. (laughs) Observation, consecration, exaltation. First of all, the, the observation of God's presence. The observation of God's presence. Chapter three and verse one. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. As soon as you see, see what? See what? As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was in the Old Testament, that physical symbol of the, the presence and power and precepts of God, even the very throne of God. The people were to observe and to, to focus on the presence of God. The ark, uh, usually kept inside the tabernacle in the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could enter. The ark, kind of a, half the size of maybe a communion table with wooden poles in order that it could be carried. As the 12 priests were commanded to do here at the River Jordan, the covenant law of God, the Ten Commandments, kept inside the box. On the top, two cherubim with these wings touching between them and on top of the lid over the Ten Commandments was the mercy seat from which, above the mercy seat, God would make himself known. And here, at the banks of the Jordan, the people were not to get too close, if you notice, because God is holy, But they're also to keep close enough that they may see it, that they may observe it. They were to observe it at all times, to keep it in their vision. When you see the ark move, then you move. When you see the ark, then you move. So the ark was the Old Testament expression of the power and presence of God, particularly in his saving grace and mercy noticed as the people camped there for three days, they observed the difficulty of the t- task ahead. You know, imagine being pitched up there for three days and looking at this, this river Jordan. River it was high tide. It's high tide when God leads, leads them across, you know. He didn't wait until it was low tide. He didn't wait till it was an easy ride, if you like. Why? Why is that? Because God often brings his people to places in their lives where the task ahead is so impossible... It's so impossible, only God can get them through. Isn't that true? Only God can liberate them. People must have looked at that river and thought, we're dead if we go in. But as soon as those priests bearing the ark touched the river, the waters were stopped and the people passed through on dry ground. And this church has experienced those times. You touched on some of those, Michael, Andrew, even in the, that overview of, of church history, times where It has looked impossible. We were here and there was maybe 12 people on a Sunday, a few people at prayer meetings. But oh, how the people prayed. Oh, how the people prayed in this place, cried out to the Lord. It looked impossible. And then after we left and went to Canada, things got even worse, it seems, even more impossible. And the people prayed and the people waited and prayed for a man to come. And the Lord brought Chola. The people here were to consider the river and the difficulty of the task and then the ark. And they were called to observe, keep their eyes on that symbol of God's presence and power, even the symbol of God himself. What about us today? Well, Hebrews tells us, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The mercy seat is no longer an essential part of atonement. Instead, Christ has become the one who atones for sin. He is the great high priest who is also the sacrifice, who makes atonement for our sins and brings in a new covenant. So we don't look to the ark, we look to Christ. We keep our eyes on Christ, the crucified and risen Christ and what he did on the cross to save us. The one perfect sacrifice, absorbing the punishment that was due to you, to me, to whoever trusts in him. What love. So that the author of Hebrews can say in chapter 12, as you run the Christian race, look to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He has tabernacled among us the very saving presence and power of God, full of grace and truth. So the symbol you see has been replaced by the reality And therefore, just as the people of Israel needed to observe God's saving power and presence by keeping the ark in view. Christians, we today need to observe God's saving power and presence by keeping Christ and his cross in view. Fix your eyes on Jesus, friends. You come to him to be saved and you keep looking at him and you follow him into all the blessings of Christian life. Too many of us. To many of us, we, we don't see our lives through the lens of God's saving grace and what it means to follow Jesus. You, we get focused on our problems. We get focused on the difficulty of the tasks ahead. And we take our eyes off Jesus and his word. And soon we become like Israel in the wilderness. You're not grateful anymore. And you begin to grumble. You've forgotten God. And when you grumble... Relationships crumble. Instead, look at the stones, look at the ark, look at Jesus Christ. And think this, if God did not spare his own son for you, how will he not also with him graciously give you all things? He's already done the hardest thing. He gave his son. He gave his son for you, the the most valuable person in, in, in the universe. Will he not give you everything you need? To walk this Christian life as he makes you increasingly like Jesus? Is he not able to do the impossible? Is he not able to do something great as he brings you home? He may or may not change your circumstances. But he will change you through those circumstances. And thanksgiving for his mercy will undercut any bitterness... And it will actually make you a more merciful person, even as you suffer great hardships and difficulties. That is the greater power and glory. He raised Jesus from the dead, our Lord did. Will he not also raise you? And so isn't it amazing for us, that for us as Christians, even the circumstance of death is not our enemy. It's actually the way to final healing. You fall asleep in Christ and you wake up in his arms. that amazing thing. Our Joan fell asleep in Christ and woke up in his arms. In heaven forever. And on that last day, we promised we, we even received that, that resurrection body like his. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember what He has done. Keep your eyes on Jesus and follow him. And so, so these 12 sons, then they serve as a memorialization of God's saving deeds through the observation of God's saving presence. And then in light of the consecration of God's people. Observation, then consecration. Verse 5 in chapter 3. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Joshua is saying, in order for you to enter into blessings, you need to commit yourself to God. You need to commit yourself to God. In its context, to consecrate oneself would have involved washing one's clothes in a a cleansing act and also abstaining from sexual relations in marriage, a relational act, a cleansing act and a relational act. It's unpacked in Exodus 19. In the washing of clothes, there's the idea if you like, of turning from and separating from sin. And in the abstaining from sexual relations with one's wife is the idea of single-minded allegiance to God even above your closest relationship. What does Jesus say? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my Disciple, Radical words of consecration here. The, the account in Matthew explains this as not loving father or mother more than we love Jesus Christ. So even close relationships are secondary. A pastor in uh, the United States is, is helpful here. He says, if we love Jesus Christ above all things, then we're in fellowship with the source of all the love in the universe. If we refuse to do so, then it doesn't matter what we make into our idol, we're not in fellowship with the source of all love. And if we're not in fellowship with that love, then even if you idolize your father, he will actually get less honor, respect, and love than if he were number two. You see what he's saying? It's the same with your spouse or any relationship. You've got folks going around, even in the church, struggling in their relationships, trying hard even to to make them work. And the reason they're not working is because you've not got the primary relationship in order. You haven't put Jesus as your first love. Jesus says, consecrate yourself to me. Reject past and present sins, anything else you desire above me and yield to me as most precious. So that... Loving me and following me makes even your loving allegiance to your family look like hate. That's what he's trying to say. It's about a disposition of wholehearted commitment worked out in obedience. Now, remember, this this consecration, it doesn't qualify you for blessing, but it is a means of receiving blessing based on God's grace to you. His saving, sovereign grace is the foundation then for your consecration. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says in, in, in the letter to the Romans? You remember this, he's unpacked in 11 chapters God's sovereign grace. And beginning in chapter 12, he says, I appear to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, these mercies in the first 11 chapters, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In light of those first 11 chapters of God's saving mercies, consecrate yourselves to God. Live in light of God's love for you. Then you will have success as God defines. C.T. Studd said, and you'll know it, one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Is that me, I ask myself? Is that me? One life, will soon be passed. We know it's going quick. It's a breath. What are we doing? Are we consecrating our lives to God? Is your life consecrated to God, friend? He wants it, you know. He wants all of it. Every part. You can't be friends with the world and with God too. You must be in the world, but not of the world. All areas of your life must be holy unto the Lord your relationships, your speech, your social media, your work. And that kind of consecration will lead you to take all sorts of holy risks for the Lord, even to other lands maybe or onto the mission field or to maybe just stand out there or maybe an open air preaching one Saturday afternoon oh that God would raise up true evangelists and missionaries from this place and, and send them out what a thing if any of you have heard me preach before you'll know that one of my heroes of the Christian faith is Eric little, maybe not so much the theological side but just this man was a Scottish international rugby player, Olympic runner, who went on to become a Christian missionary in China, where he died in a prisoner of war camp during the Second World War. At the uh, Olympic Games in Paris, he famously refused to compete in the 100 metre heats because they were held on a Sunday, and Little was a strict Sabbatarian that is, he, he would not work or play sports on Sunday because Sunday was set aside for God. And he felt he must. Honour God before country or any personal desire for any success. And he stood firm on his principles in the face of national and international pressure on him to run. And then in a remarkable turn of events, instead of running in the 100 metres, he ended up running in the 400 metres final and he won. God had honoured him because he honoured God. Little consecrated his life to God. And he felt God's pleasure through his obedience all the way to his death in a prison camp. He enjoyed the blessing of life in the promised land of Christ, even through suffering. What a life well lived. What a life well lived. Do you want that? Do you want to live like that? We've got to stop living for low grade things. It's so easy to live for low grade things, friends. Repent of sin. Put to death idols. Decide today who you want to follow. Decide today who you want to follow. Make a choice right now about the direction you are taking. Is it down the broad way? Not the broad way. The broad way (laughs) that leads to destruction. And I'm sure the broad way could lead to destruction as well. Or is it the narrow way that leads to life? If you're not a Christian here today, You've heard, you've even heard something of what the Lord Jesus has done to save sinners such as us. Speak to people here who who are Christians. Ask them, what do these 12 stones mean? Let them tell you about what he's done for them and what you need him to do for you. And if you are a Christian, don't backslide. Are you going forward or are you going back to Egypt, back to slavery, or is it forwards? And across the Jordan into the promised land. You couldn't put it better than Joshua himself in the end of uh, chapter 24. Chapter 24, verse 25. Choose this day, don't wait. Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Don't look at him. Don't look at her. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Consecrate yourself like that, and as it says in the text, back in our text today, tomorrow God will do wonders amongst you. So look at the twelve stones, friends, and see a memorialization of God's saving deeds through the observation of God's saving presence in light of the consecration. Of God's saved people and finally with regards to the exaltation of God's chosen servant the exaltation of God's chosen servant verse 7 of chapter 3 the Lord said to Joshua today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses so I will be with you And then after Joshua led them across the Jordan, he fulfills this promise. And in chapter four, verse 14, on that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. And they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of their lives. And so we see, friends, the exaltation of God's servant in the eyes of God's saved people. Moses is referred to the servant of God. Now Joshua has taken that mantle in the sight of all the people of God and God is with him in a special way. He's with him. It's not the main point of this miracle. It's a consequence of it. And we see in the exaltation of Joshua a faint echo, don't we? If your biblical antenna are up, a faint echo of the exaltation of Jesus. When we enter the promised land and embrace Christ and follow him, he is exalted, isn't he, in our hearts. He's exalted in our hearts. And we see a a pattern here for all of God's leaders here. We have some very faithful leaders of God's people amongst us today. There's a pattern here, friends. Joshua was humiliated in the book of Numbers, you know, when he came back from spying out Canaan. You remember that? And contrary to the cowardly spies who said it was too difficult, he and Caleb said, No, we must we must go. And do you remember the people's response to Joshua in Numbers 14? They wanted to stone him. They wanted to stone him. Joshua was humiliated. Now those same people want to see him exalted. They see him exalted. Isn't that what happens to our Lord and Saviour Jesus? That's Philippians 2. He came in humiliation. He took on the role of a servant, even though he was God. He took on flesh and came down to us. And he humbled himself. How? By becoming obedient to his father's will all the way to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, on the basis of that, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ is Lord. It is humiliation before exaltation for our Lord and Saviour. And it is humiliation before exaltation for God's chosen servants. And it is humiliation before exaltation for all Christians who follow that pattern. Humbled under the mighty hand of God, remember Peter's words, in order that at the right time you may be exalted But do note this, friends, the exaltation of Joshua is connected to blessings for God's people. You see, where rightly appointed leadership in the church is executed well, executed well and honoured well by those who are under that leadership, then the people, the church, experiences God's blessing. And when it is not executed well or when the people do not honour their leaders, they miss out on God's blessing. And therefore, it is vital to you that, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, you respect those who labour among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so that raising worthy men, raising up elders in the church is vital, friends, vital for the future of a local church, and for planting churches. Oh, how we need to see men raised up here in this place for future work. And it's vital that all of us embrace God's pattern for spiritual leadership as wives respect their husbands in the home and and children, adult and younger, honour your father and mother. For God's sake, embrace it. And for your good, embrace it. And then you experience God's blessing And this peace and this harmony and a fruitfulness in the land. So mark this, the blessings we receive are related in some way to how well we embrace the execution and reception of spiritual leadership. And so we see the exaltation of God's servant. So look at the 12 stones as we close, friends. Look at the 12 stones and see a memorialization of God's saving deeds through the observation of God's saving presence in light of the consecration of God's saved people and with regards to the exaltation of God's chosen servant. The purpose of it all, purpose of the, these things is at the end of chapter four, right at the end, so that, there's the purpose, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. What's the ultimate purpose of it all? It's twofold. First is so that a watching world will know God's saving power when you tell them about it. Tell the gospel, friends. It's their only hope. Let's be evangelists in Bexley Heath. Let us plant churches here and even abroad. There are people here in these streets who are, who are going to hell. They, they don't know the gospel. They need to be saved. Uh, and you are God's chosen instruments to to bring the gospel to them so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. And second, you see it there, so that you may fear the Lord, your God, forever. That you may reverence him in your heart. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. That's the heartbeat. And that you would love him with all your being. You see, it starts in here, today, in your heart, right now, in your heart? Do you love him with all your being? It starts with your heart today. He's saying to you right now, are you serious about me? Are you serious about me? Because Jesus died for you. Choose today whom you will serve, because you will be serving someone. I pray that the Lord will grant this church grace for another 200 years of God-fearing, and gospel preaching and church planting Even as we pray come lord jesus come let's pray father god thank you for your word to us today and i pray that you bless it to us right now in jesus name amen